are listening to Intersections with Phil Allen Jr., engaging the issues that matter at the intersection of race, culture, and theology. In this episode, I get a chance to speak with Dr. Daniel Lee of Fuller Theological Seminary. He is the Assistant Professor of Theology and Asian American Ministry. He is also the Academic Dean for the Center for Asian American Theology and Ministry. He is the author of the book, Double Particularity, Karl Barth, Contextuality and Asian American Theology. You can find that book on Amazon. Dr. Daniel Lee, thank you so much for, for being here today. You, you already know, man, you're one of my favorite professors to listen to, to learn from, to glean from, which is interesting because I have yet to take a class under you, but you've, you've lectured in one of my classes and I've heard you lecture um, elsewhere before. So I'm excited to have you here to just, just talk and, and just learn and glean from you in this context as well. Dr. Lee, um, I'm gonna let you introduce yourself, kind of self-introduce, but I do wanna share that Dr. Lee is academic dean for the Center for Asian American Theology and Ministry at Fuller Theological Seminary. He's also the Assistant Professor of Theology and Asian American Ministry and the Diversity Council Co-Chair at Fuller Theological Seminary. And as I shared, Dr. Lee is uh, one of my favorite professors to, to sit down and have coffee with, to, to sit and, and, and listen to in terms of a lecture. He's, his insight is just not just profound and, and, and it's not like highly academic where you can't understand what he's saying. It's very conversational whenever he's lecturing. I, I feel like I'm just sitting at the feet of wisdom and I, I enjoy that. So thank you so much for, for being on the show today. Uh, I want you to have an opportunity to just share a little bit about, about you, your background, and what, what are you most passionate about um, when it comes to theology and culture and obviously the Asian American context? Phil, I don't know if I can live up to that. If I, <laughs> if I can live up to that introduction. Uh, yeah, I, that's humbling. Uh, I, um, I think what gets me excited is, is, you know, God in a sense, right? And one of the things I try to really do is not become, uh, and I talk about this, that none of us, not, no pastors or seminarians should become theology nerds. Because theology nerds, gets excited, they, they get excited about theologians. And good theologians should get excited about God. Absolutely. And they see, it's, it, you think it's a minor difference, it's not. It's a humongous difference, right? So uh, that's actually what I'm interested in. And I think, I think when I think about, you know, I, I guess people, some people was to, to say that I do contextual theology. I, I'm actually not interested in, I'm interested in context because I think God cares about it. If God doesn't care about it, I don't think we should think about it, yeah. right? So the question is, why, you know, does God care about it? If God does, in what sense does God care about it? So I think those are the kind of things that I care about. And of course, um, it'll, it'll intersect with our conversation. I'm actually really interested in how to distinguish the gospel from what is not the gospel. Mm. Because th there's, there's a long tradition, right? There's a long tradition. And of course, because I'm, I'm a Reformed theologian and I've, I've drank deep from the well of, of Luther in some sense, and his idea of theology of the cross, which I mean, I, I kind of obsess about, because there's something here, and his, uh, of course, Reformation idea, and if, you know, and you can even critique Luther on this thing, because he develops it, and he doesn't always follow it, but there's something here that says, how do you distinguish Christianity from what is not Christianity? And in my systemic theology classes, I talk about um, how do you scrub away uh, cultural baggage that accrues 
from what the gospel is because this is continually happens right so those are the kind of things that i really feel passionate about and 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 of course the topic uh, at hand today um connects deeply to, to to that to that interest yeah yeah have you uh been able to breathe yet since tuesday <laughs> you know everyone's on edge everyone's anxious you know the, the the count is still happening numbers are still coming in what are your thoughts in the last two days and how are you handling this this this, this weight I would say, just honestly, I'm not handling it very well. Okay. I, I, I find myself really overwhelmed. And I try to, you know, I'm a type, type, I'm a type, type of person that kind of tries to think, tries to digest the worst case scenario so that I can kind of be prepared for it. Yeah. But the worst case scenario is, is, is quite rough. Yeah. I, I think you feel, one thing I've been thinking about is this, like I've been thinking about how do Christians uh, in very oppressive environments keep their faith? Like, how does that happen, right? You know, USSR or, 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 uh, or like North Korea or Communist China or whatever, like where it's really oppressive and Christians are keeping their faith. And I was thinking about the fact that a lot of, a lot of those countries are atheists, right? So the oppression is not coming from faith. The oppression is coming from what you clearly identify as something against God. Yeah. But what, how do you keep your faith when you feel like the, the oppression as this compromising element where there are actually elements of Christianity there. And that's where I think liberation theology is really interesting, right? South American liberation theology, for example. Or I mean, even like, you know, uh, black theology and everything else. Because the oppression is coming from um, elements of Christianity. So how do you articulate and keep your faith? That becomes an interesting task. And that becomes a more difficult task. Yeah. If you say the oppression is coming from this ungodly thing, you can say, okay, I can hold on to God. But how do you hold on to God when the, the oppression is coming from people who think they're doing it in the name of God? Yep. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult place to be. So I've been, I've been thinking about that and struggling with that. Yeah, when you, it's interesting you bring that up because I think about slavery, 246 years of slavery, and how do they keep their faith when it's the very faith this God was supposedly endorsing or ordaining their enslavement. And so I'm th the word that came to my mind, and maybe you can help me unpack this, is just a thought, self-affirmation. Like, how do you get that in the midst of, so I think about Negro spirituals, I think about um, the rituals, the dance, I think about tapping into uh, not just rituals for the sake of rituals for doing something, but for the sacramental aspect of those rituals, tapping into their ancestral uh, lineage and, and what is what does this dance mean? What does this what does this uh, these songs mean to us? These groanings, what do they do? They, they do something to the soul. That's that's the first thought that comes to my mind. Any any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> um, it's a great example, right? Because you're trying to and I, you know I I was thinking about this and I kind of I'm. <laughs> I'm kind of humble to say that I used to always wonder, like, why do people obsess about, like, African Americans obsess about black Christians, obsess about this idea of, like, is Christianity a slave owner's, uh, uh, you know, uh, a religion? And I was like, do people still think about this? And I'm like, oh, I get it now. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just, it's just a live thing. It's just, it just keeps on going because you can't, it's hard to kind of articulate and distinguish that because, once again, the oppression keeps on happening and it's using Christian rhetoric. Yeah. 
Um, and so this is actually a really interesting point, and I, I think gets close to uh, my field of research in terms of how do you articulate that? I mean, you know, I, I, I'm, uh, one of my field of studies is, is Karl Barth, and he was trying to figure out how do you distinguish Christianity from what the gospel is? And he didn't like the word Christian. He's like, when you, when you stick a word Christian in something, like, it actually sounds as though it's from God, but often it's not. So he's like, how would you call anything Christian? Like Christian nation or Christian, I don't know, book or whatever, cruise or whatever, you know, yeah. something, all the things they would talk about. What does that really mean? Because it seems to baptize something when in fact, very often uh, than not, it's actually just a uh, uh, form of, uh, you know, cultural oppression or, or, or ideology that they were baptizing, right? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, just, it's, just, it's just something that I think we... Uh, often don't think about because we're very I mean a lot of people get excited about calling things Christian and they're like well this is actually it, you know very clear the fact that this is Christian this is not when in fact uh, the forces that we're up against just in the world is absolutely insidious in terms of how how they distort the things that we think um, are of God and that's one of the most dangerous things one of my mentors over at Princeton Seminary was uh, Daryl Guder and he talks about um uh, the need for a c- continuing conversion of the church, right? Because th- this kind of forces of co- uh, co-opting and distortion, cultural distortion of the gospel keeps on happening. That unless you're woke, <laughs> unless you're uh, you know awake yeah. to continually struggle with the gospel, you will get domesticated. The Christianity will get domesticated, and it'll become ideological. And it'll be used for used for the purposes of oppression or or self-interest. Absolutely. That that's just one of those things that. Uh, we don't think about it because we think clearly this is Christian, this is not. And that's, uh, I think, part of uh, the lesson that we have to understand. Yeah. Now, you said you weren't handling the weight well. And, and when I said that, again, this just came to my mind, the weight in terms of W-E-I-G-H-T and the weight in terms of W-A-I-T. Like they, I, I think I, I think they they go hand in hand at this point. And so... Yeah. No, it's 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 heavy. It's heavy. I mean, <laughs> it is heavy, and it's um, uh, a friend. One was like, a friend of mine told me, well, you know, I think there's some people who are like, well, it doesn't really matter to some degree because, um, you know, let's just keep on going, uh, whatever is happening. Um, and for last past four years were pretty bad, but you know, it is just going to continue. And I'm thinking to myself, like. Uh, I think there's some people who feel like to some degree because they don't feel it right. They don't feel the they don't feel it in their bodies, yeah. um, and they, they might be protected by their socioeconomic status. They might be protected by their race, and they might think, well, this is not, you know, like uh, national politics has my, you know, very little impact in their lives from their perspective, um, and this is where I think <laughs> we're not understanding. Uh, those people th- where the national politics really literally impacts their bodies, right? Yep, yep. I mean, for Asian Americans, whenever Trump talks about the Wuhan virus and China's virus, it literally impacts us, yeah. right? And actually, it's really interesting because um, when the when the um, kind of these uh, violence happens, anti-Asian violence happens, it's not coming from a particular place. I mean. It's terrible the fact that the 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 police um, um, 
uh, kind of violence um, upon uh, black bodies. I mean, at least at least it's clear where it's coming from. I mean, it's coming from multiple places, but at least you can protest that. I don't know how you protest random people. I mean, just total strangers come up and who want to like, a, you know, burn a grandma or just sucker punch people. Like, how do you, what do you do about something? Like, who do you even protest for that? Yeah. I mean, I guess you protect Trump to some degree, uh, kind of, because he's the one that's propagating it. And actually, whenever he says it, there actually is a reaction of the people. Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, I think, you know, for people who who uh, don't immediately feel it, they're not, uh, they're not understanding the fact that there are a lot of people who actually are feeling it in their bodies directly. And not, not think about that to to lose sight of that. I think is really uh, it's really sad. It's really sad uh, um, state of affairs in terms of lack, this lack of lack of empathy for uh, a common humanity. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you said you think about the worst case scenario um, so you can prepare yourself for it. And I do I do the same thing. I, I sit and I process. Okay, what what's the worst thing that could happen here, and how do I respond to this? Um, we're still waiting on the results. Where do you think this, the, the country goes from here? Because when I look at the, the map and I see all the red states, and I'm like, wait a minute. After all this man has done and said in four years, and, I, and we know that the, the loyalty that the evangelical uh, part of the country has towards Trump, what is the bar? What what is um, what does it take? How are we judging or determining who's fit to lead us as a church? So so I I saw, see all that to say this. If Trump wins, what, what, what is this? If he comes back and, and wins, what is that worst case scenario? But as it looks, it looks like Biden is going to hold off and, and, and win this election and become the next president. And then if Biden wins, where does this take us? I, let me kind of refer, kind of step back a little bit. Okay. The, a lot of people have said this, and I, I believe it to a degree. You know, people say uh, Trump has uh, helped reveal what's already present, right? These things were all elements were all there, and he has uh, revealed it. I mean, I think it's slightly different than that. I think he has revealed something, and he's emboldened certain elements, but also he's fanned it, right? He's fanned these fears. I mean, for example, like, you know, uh, the underlying fear is, of course, you know, white folks will be a minority by 2045. That is a, like, that's a shift in people's thinking, right? Not to have that. I mean, and actually, it's not like after 2045, the fact that, you know, uh, white privilege will disappear altogether. That's not true, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it'll linger on. There are a lot of people of color who basically kind of will will still kind of uh, uh, join forces in that sense and kind of uh, want uh, because of that, once again, the financial status or or for other privilege will keep that uh, um, kind of keep whiteness alive. Yep. But uh, I think that shift is really terrifying for a lot of people. And it's also um, a continuation of, uh, of kind of um, erosion of kind of white uh, or... I guess Christendom, right? Christendom, it's like having that normative power within within uh, the U.S. Um, that's terrifying for a lot of Christians as well because they don't understand what it really means to be a minority or to ha- not have that power. 
to not have, and actually, I mean, Christians having that power in politics and everything else, it's not Christianity anyway. It's basically like, it's basically Christian ideology that we're, we're talking about. Yes. I mean, how else and other people have pointed it out. And I think it's also kind of talking about loss of Christian supremacy. I mean, not, not Christian, American supremacy in the world. We're, we're not really, we're losing our global power status. And that's terrifying for a lot of people because there's, there's no way to really stop that. You know, and China's on the rise, so it kind of uh, because old um, kind of orientalist, orientalist and yellow pair of fears. Uh, it, so I think along with all of that, all the fears, she's fanning it through propaganda and fears. Uh, and the reason why fears and propaganda are working is because the state of the American education system is horrible. Mm. <laughs> our, our, how we teach history, how we teach critical thinking, it's just not there, right? Yeah. We don't have an educated electorate, so they can't tell. They can't even discern what a propaganda is. And this is our educational system. So this is actually all that's happening. It's not like as though people are like, um, <clears throat> they're not taught these things. I mean, to some degree, even if you're taught, you can actually have differences in, in a political opinion. But that's probably one of the reasons why there are people who are educated who are Republicans who are like, what we're doing is not normal. This is actually not part of how the system's supposed to work. And then there are other people who just can't even tell the difference based on that. So that's that's what all this is all that's happening. It's not just the fact that uh, Trump is revealing everything. It's he's fanning it. And also there's too many people who aren't not really trained to think critically yes. or think about our history well i mean our national history or even global history i mean you know international history we barely understand the fact that u.s is a is a uh, is an empire it's an empire now yeah, right yeah, we have yeah. no understanding of that even how we, how we were taught about history is totally flawed so that's we're just reaping all that and there's not an easy fix because like i said our whole educational system is flawed and how we teach history is flawed yeah yeah i i agree you know, when, when I talk about the issue of race and, and addressing racial injustice, I, I, I take that genealogical, historical approach because I think people don't even know how we got here, right? right, they, right. they don't even know the issues that are happening today. Many of us can say, okay, this happened in very similarly in such and such period. Right, and it's right. coming back. This is not a new thing. Or this is a continuation of this. And there are a lot of people that I just did a presentation yesterday morning for a company. And when I share the historic, I, I do a historical, a brief historical survey and walk them from the middle passage. Um, and usually I try to hit um, each area of, uh, in terms of race, how racism has impacted during this season, it, th this group was dealing with this and this group was dealing with this to show them mm -hmm. that the things that are happening now, they come from a place. And most people have no clue um, about that. So I think, I agree, I think that the historical, the, the teaching of history, uh, especially the critical thinking, um, it, and, and I would say in the church, especially in the church. The yeah, let's... Go ahead. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the church. Uh, so, you know, I mean, one of the things that we were talking about uh, before was uh, this article in Christian, Christian Century. And this is not the only article, obviously. There's a lot of people talking about this thing. And, you know, it's not a perfect analogy, uh, obviously, but there's just analogy between Nazi Germany and what's happening now, right? Fascism and, kind of, you know, all that stuff that's happening. Yeah. Um, and actually, it's a very similar logic, actually. A very similar argumentation.
very similar uh, logic and also how how the churches in Nazi Germany kind of reacted. I mean, they really they were super excited. They were so excited with Hitler. And actually, there's you know there's a great book called Aryan Jesus by uh, uh, Suzanne um, Herschel. Mm. Uh, it's a great book talking about the fact that what did what did the uh, Christian Church do right um, with Nazi Germany? It turns out that uh, uh, Hitler didn't really care about Christianity. He really cared more about Nordic religion. He's like, well, you know, I don't really care about all this different stuff. But he saw how much Christians hated the Jews. I mean, everybody, right? He said, oh, I'll use Christianity. That's basically why he basically kind of leaned into Christianity more. I mean, it's the same thing here, right? I mean, it's not like Trump cares about Christianity. It's like, oh, here are the people that care about it. Here's people that I can kind of use, right, Thank you. <laughs> for my purposes. Thank you. And I think here... Um, you know, people always say, well, if I was back, I mean, always, people always say, well, if I was, you know, back then and, and there was a score times, I would, I would choose the right side. I'm thinking to myself, no, you wouldn't because you're doing it right now. Exactly. Right? And, and this is what I want to break down. This is, I, so I've been thinking about this thing. Like, um, it's really a strange case in terms of American churches because I'm actually looking at pastors and, and, you know, like pastors don't know how to actually choose a side because they actually don't know that's something you can't do, Right. So there's a couple of things. I would say uh, they lack the category of uh, of judgment. Like the fact that there is judgment, and it doesn't mean that grace gets rid of judgment. Like, there, you know, there's an re- interaction between judgment and grace and justice that's in Scripture, but we don't actually know how to talk about that because we try to erase it altogether. Mm. And so I'll, I'll kind of categorize so that we can talk about one thing at a time. Second thing is that, we don't actually know how to distinguish, right? We only know how to talk about, we only have universal categories. We don't actually have historical categories. Like, for example, like, we have ultimate categories. I and mean, this is Jewish Bonner for talking. We have ultimate categories. We don't have penultimate categories. Yeah. And I'll kind of unpack that a little bit more, one thing at a time. And then, and then we don't actually know how to choose sides. We don't actually, we think everything's about neutrality and peace. right? And the, and the last thing, the fourth thing is, we actually don't think about our faith or our Christian ethic historically or contextually. Mm. Now, if you lack all four things, there's actually no way you can actually function or choose the, like choose sides when there has to be, right? For example, like apartheid South Africa or, or, or uh, <clears throat> Nazi Germany. If you don't have these categories, if you don't have these skills, you can't choose a side because your theology doesn't allow you to do that. Yeah. Right? You, I mean, like, you know, Tim Keller. I mean, I think... Generally, he's talking about some kind of truth, but it's actually totally flawed when he says yeah. Christianity doesn't really fit into a, 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 a you know um, a, a party politics. I mean, we know that, but if you use that logic during Nazi Germany, I mean, think about that. Think about the craziness of that. I would think about the craziness of using that using that idea for like you know apartheid South Africa. See, he, that's a that's a contextual, you know, a contextual ethic, right? Okay, in general, yeah, yeah, I agree, but that's not where we live. That's not reality. And to, for him, yeah, for him to post that is totally irresponsible and really quite ignorant. I think just lack of once again lack of skills to think about these things, and that's one of the reasons why if he was back in Nazi Germany, he wouldn't be able to tell the difference because he doesn't have the theological apparatus to make make a case for the fact that we should condemn Hitler back yeah. then, right? Yes. And the same thing here. How do you know? And I'm not, I'm not just directly making a, a case and saying, 
you know, Trump is Hitler. I think I think that you know those those arguments are, are very you know it's you have to kind of have caveats in these things. But in a similar case, can't we make a case? And the and the and the problem is, our theological training doesn't allow us to. Wow. Wow. You 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 said a whole lot. <laughs> you said a whole lot right there. Um, I I wanna I I wanna unpack that. But I also want to I wanted to shift a bit and, and be more particular, be more specific. So I want to do two things. I want to I want to I want to narrow in, hone in on the Asian American context, both as it relates to the election and to what you kind of what you just shared in terms of theology and ethics. Um, we we hear a lot about the black vote, the urban vote in Philadelphia in Georgia um, may bring this thing home for Biden if it keeps at the rate that it's going. We hear a lot about the Latinx vote, particularly in Arizona, uh, which I think is poetic justice, given the fact that who Trump has disparaged over the, over the last four years and the fact that uh, McCain, who he is so disrespected, that his state might be the state that locks it locks it for Biden. It'd be so much poetic justice there. But where in that conversation is the Asian American voices, vote? Um, where, where the, how do they weigh in on this election? And then we can transition after that to the same thing theologically, because we hear the black-white the black -white binary so often, and the Asian American voice gets lost in that. But beginning with the election, um, do, do you think the Asian American voice has gotten lost in the conversation? Um, I mean, it, that's how the national media kind of portrays it, right? They don't actually count Asian Americans. And that, you know, as you mentioned, it's, it's part of the black and white binary. The black and white binary is a paradigm, basically, uh, as we know. I mean, this is not in any way. Whenever I talk about the black and white binary, I, I tell people, if you're going to talk about it correctly, you're not in any way marginalizing the particular experiences, the special, exceptional case of Asian, you know, the African Americans. If you if you do that, then you're not you're not talking about it correctly, right? So, given the fact that there's actually this exceptional experience of of a uh, uh, Black Americans, so so accepting that, um, I think what ends up happening is it's it's a part of racial formation in the U.S. The fact that uh, if uh, how race is taught is that it's actually talked about it in terms of a black and white binary, and we kind of erase everybody else. And this is actually bad for black folks as well, because you lose all the allies, because the, the history gets lost. History yeah. of resistance by all the Latinos, history of Latinos, you know, resistance by all the Asian Americans. It gets all lost, and therefore they think, well, I guess we have no history. Therefore, we kind of, uh, it, we just will you know, connect to whiteness, right? Which yeah. is terrible, yes. right? So, yes. I mean, there's a long history. I was thinking about this, and this is something that I've been thinking, <clears throat> uh, I've been researching a bit. There wouldn't be Asian America without the black movement, without black power movement, mm. even specifically Black Panthers. There's a great book called Ch Chains of Babylon, The Rise of Asian America by Daryl uh, uh, Maida. Uh, and he talks about how this is how early so Asian America, the category of Asian America, right, <clears throat> or Asian American as a, as a uh, label is only fifty years old. Okay. Right. It's actually this is self awareness, right? Racial self awareness of Asian Americans and realizing, oh my gosh, 
like we're not we, what does it mean for us to kind of understand the fact that we're a racial minority, right? Uh, because a lot of immigrants kind of go from being an immigrant to being a white American. That's actually how a lot of, you know, it transitions over. Yeah. And what ended up happening during that was that a lot of the, a lot of the second and third generation Japanese Americans and, and, and uh, Chinese Americans and Filipino Americans, mostly they were there, um, they realized that they weren't going to be become white America. They were immigrants before, or they were part of the empire, right? Because, you know, Philippines, it wasn't, they were not immigrating. They just coming to the center of the empire. Uh, um, they, uh, they realized they can't practice whiteness. So they said, well, let's actually look at, they performed blackness. They were literally mentored. A lot of them were mentored by Black Panthers. Wow. Right? And so I think people... Forget that, right? And a lot of actually young Asian Americans now, they're like, well, we, we should learn from black people because that's what we do. I'm like, we did that 50 years ago, and there's a whole field called Asian American studies. Uh, well, so, did they forget it or do they not know it? No, they didn't know it. They didn't, okay. they didn't forget it. They didn't know, we, we forget it collectively, right? Okay. But we didn't know it because our educational system, once again, is white normative and, and black and white binary erases Asian American history, which is bad, right? For everybody, but you know. So, uh, and, and even if you knew that, of course, there might be there might be some diversity, but it's actually it's what I tell people is that there is actually uh, a difference between an informed understanding of your identity and an uninformed one. Now, even if you're informed, you might have differences of opinion, but if you're uninformed, of course, you have no idea what's going on. You just don't understand where you, how you got here, right? Mm -hmm. So that's part of I think. Um, that's that's the, that sets the stage in terms of how Asian Americans kind of enter the politics. They're people who are very informed, who basically are understanding politically where they are, and of course those are the activists. A lot of activists know their history, right? Asian American activists, but a lot of people who are actually more recent immigrants, for example, they really they think, well, I must be the first one here because that's what everybody tells me, right? Because U.S. has no history of Asian Americans, even though we have over 150 years of history. Yeah. Uh, we say, well, you must be, you must be foreign. And of course, you know, when you when you internalize that message, we say, well, I guess I'm just a foreigner, right? And I guess at some point I will stop being a foreigner, and I'll be American, which basically means I'll be I'll be treated like a white person. Yes, whiteness. So I think in that sense, a lot of people who are informed, who are being informed, are are basically political active and kind of understanding how the system works. And there's a lot of people who are uninformed, who basically. Um, who basically say, well, look, um, there is no history, therefore, why would I choose a side that's gonna, that's gonna, uh, why would I not privilege whiteness in a sense? So if you look at the Asian American uh, uh, community altogether, I mean, about uh, two thirds voted for Biden and one third voted for Trump. Okay. That's actually what it looks like, right? Okay. I think, <clears throat> and a lot of the younger, I mean, a lot of the more recent immigrants are the people who are choosing Trump. Because what ends up happening is over time, you end up understanding your racial formation better. And therefore, you know, you basically kind of understand the fact that you're a racial minority. You have your faith connected to other people of color. But that doesn't happen. I mean, it's actually, this is the same thing even for like, you know, a lot of uh, <clears throat> immigrants from Africa to some degree, right? 
they come and they're like, well, I thought America's a white nation. I don't understand why African Americans are complaining about they should get, get get their get their act together like us or yeah. something like that, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. this is basically the, 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 the area of tension. But then, you know, a couple whatever is later, they're like, oh my gosh, yeah. I'm, I'm a black person. I'm like, yes, <laughs> you are. There's a thing called racial formation in the U.S. So I think it's it's similar to what happens in Asian Americans and because the size is so small. I mean, it's not that small, but uh, it's, it's about 5% or 5, 6% or so. Uh, it's just, it's not being included, which basically adds to people not being politically active, right? Black Amabani erases people and then blames them for not being active. I'm like, well, I mean, when you erase somebody, and then I mean, obviously it's hard to figure out how to how to enter the conversation, and then you say, well, it's your fault for not being active. I'm like, well, I mean, it takes a lot to get through those hoops to be active when you've been erased for so long. So how do you revert? How do, how do you? How do you suggest or would, 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 would say to, say me, someone who is trying to engage and, and be active and be on the front lines in my way, um, how do I reverse that? How do I not erase? Yeah, this is such, a, such an important question. I, I think uh, some Asian Americans find it very frustrating, and I mean, I, I do as well. <laughs> When, when there is like a race expert who happens to be black who basically don't know anything else but the black experience. Okay. And I'm like, this is not helpful. Why? Because whiteness impacts everybody differently. And you don't have to sit there and marginalize in any sense or you take away anything, anything from the, the, the brutal oppression of, of, of black bodies. Like, you, you know, we, and we, we shouldn't do that, right? We, we need to make sure that we keep on kind of keeping that uh, in the foreground. But if you just do that, you're losing allies, right? Why would you do it that way? When you, when you can say, look, let me remind you, right, of the, the long history of, of Latino, uh, you know, Hispanic resistance, right? Long history of Asian American resistance. This is your history, right? This is a broader history because whiteness oppresses everybody different. Because our problem is not black and white relationship. The problem is whiteness as it oppresses everybody else. Which right? is difficult for people to understand to distinguish the two. Yeah, yeah. And it's because it's not, a, it's not an issue of race relations. Oh, why can't black people and white people get along? I mean, there was somebody, like one of my colleagues who said, you know, it's really, really sad the fact that black people don't like white people. I'm like, well, if you're trying to shoot the other person, obviously you're not going to like them, right? It's not a race relations idea, right? And that race relationship comes from um, a different route. Like, it's not, it's not a justice route. It's, like, it's a matter of, like, why can't all these ethnicities get along, which is a faulty uh, paradigm. Mm. And that's the paradigm upon where multi-ethnicity was built upon, which is the same paradigm upon where a racial reconciliation was built upon. Okay. Often it was like, let's all get along. Yeah. And I'm like, let's all get along. How can we get along when the whole system is basically, you know, was putting a foot on, the, on another person, right? But that, that was never talked about. That's, I mean, we can, we can actually have another episode about my critique of multicultural churches. Uh, I mean, I have yes. a long list. Yes, I'm yes, like, yes. this is very problematic. I don't, it's not the fact that they shouldn't exist, it's the fact that they really shouldn't be arrogant in any way because they have so many other problems. Yes. It's like they have their own set of problems, whereas, you know, ethnic specific or racial specific have their own set of problems. And, and by the way, <laughs> when I say race specific, there should be a difference between a black church and a white church. The fact that we can't tell a difference theologically tells you how flawed mm, our ecclesiology is. Yeah. Think about that, right? Yeah. Right? Because they're like, well, it's all the same thing, it's all ethnic specific. I'm like, it's ahistorical and a contextual. 
Uh, all yeah. white church is a different thing than all black church. Yes. Like when you think about history and uh, and context, but a lot of our ecclesiology doesn't make a difference in those things. It's about yeah. generic diversity, yes. which tells you how flawed our ecclesiology really is. Absolutely. Wow. I told y'all, I told y'all before we started that we would be sitting at the feet of wisdom and there's a well of insights coming out, coming out of this man. I want to press pause right there and let's take a quick break for a short PSA and we'll come back and continue this rich conversation. You are listening to Intersections with Phil Allen Jr. The following is a trailer to the documentary short film, Open Wounds. I have a story to tell, a story of pain, of loss, of gain, of cost. The story of trauma, the drama of birth and new birth, lost and found self-worth. Before Emmett Till, there was Nate Allen, my grandfather. His body found face down, floating in the Sampit River, at the hands of a racist pulling a rifle's trigger. In this story, I gave racism a name. I call him Cain. Since he rendered my grandfather unable to speak the truth about what happened on that river in the low country, home of the Gullah speaking Geechees that raised me. But the voice of his blood cries out from the earth. And the question is, who's listening? You can view Open Wounds right now at openwoundsdoc.com. That's openwoundsdoc.com. Now, let's get back to the conversation. I want to go back to, to what you mentioned about Trump's um, labeling of the virus, the coronavirus, and he keeps saying um, the China virus, and, and he emphasizes China when he says it. Because you said something earlier about feeling it, people, not everyone feels oppression in their bodies. And I want you to speak to that, to help people understand when that, when something like that is said, particularly from the president, how, how does that feel in your body? I know what it felt like to see a George Floyd. I know what it felt like to see Aubrey or to hear certain comments um, from, from from uh, whether it's politicians or what have you. But how does that feel to hear? Because I feel it now. I feel it now. When, when, when he says it, I got goosebumps now even as, I, as I'm talking about it. I feel it. I cringe. And I get angry when, when I hear him say that and others say that. So talk to, to how does it feel in your body and how, 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 do you, how do you respond to that? I mean, you know, like there actually is research in this thing, and of course, uh, people people don't really. Uh, a lot of Asian Americans vary in terms of how they react to it because some of them they actually don't have a racial understanding of how these things work. They can't connect the dots. But in a sense, I mean, historically, when you look at history and when you look at sociology, you're like, oh, this the dots are very clear. And actually, it turns out the fact that whenever Trump talks about the China virus, there is a response by racist people okay. against 
Asian Americans, right? And of course, race functions in a phenotypical sense. So uh, there might be like some some people who don't have the kind of Chinese or like East Asian phenotype who might be like, it doesn't really matter because, right? But for and, and a lot of people might not think, well, this is just a one-off thing, right? I mean, for example, when I teach about microaggressions, people are like, I didn't know that was a thing. I thought it was just a random occurrence. I'm like, no, no, it's a thing that a lot of us have experienced for a long time. Yeah. And you're like, oh, well, now that you mention it, you're right. That was literally my whole childhood. I'm like, yes, that is called racism. They're like, I didn't understand the fact that that was racism. I'm like, that's what racism looks like for Asian Americans. Yeah. And so that's what's happening. Once you see it and have the language for it, you realize, you know, I think this is where once you have the language to label something, you realize that's what's happening. Now, when, if you don't have a language, you're like you can't articulate it. It's almost like um, it's almost like something's happening, and you think there's some kind of a connection, but you can't really tell. You're like, ah, am I, am I kind of, uh, you know, am I delusional? Am I being oversensitive? Because people always accuse, you know, people of being people of color being overly sensitive, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, because you know, once again, it's like the. 10 billionth, uh, you know, congratulations, you're the 10 billionth uh, microaggressor in my life, right? <laughs> I'm like, and you're like, you're overreacting. I'm like, I'm not overreacting because you're part of this whole system. And so I think that's basically how it functions. And now people have noted the fact that it, some Asian Americans don't really see it as a big factor. I mean, some of them they don't see it as a big factor because they're not East Asian looking. So they're like, well, it doesn't impact me. And other people, they have no language for racial formation and also racial dynamics in the U.S. So they might be, once again, more recent, you know, immigrants, or they just, they re, their education, they've never learned it. So they're like, well, you know, I just laugh it off. I'm like, until, and even when it happens to them, you know, is, this is where people try to uh, oppress, I mean, uh, repress their understanding and saying, well, they kind of try to explain it away because, as you know, reality and truth is, is no fun. Mm-hmm. It is not fun at all. I mean, mm-hmm. if you can if you can kind of deny the truth and ex- and survive, then that's basically so it's a survival mechanism. Like, well, no, this is this there is no connection. This is not what's happening. And because if you have to accept the whole thing, then it's overwhelming. So I mean, personally for me, so the <laughs> personally for me, I definitely feel it. I I really physically like get angry because I'm like, oh my gosh, this is gonna have an impact in my community, um, and uh, it, it's. It's it's just appalling. I, I it's incomprehensible the fact that this is actually happening, at some degree. Well, it is comprehensible because a lot of people don't care and the, the, a lot of uh, yellow peril. Oh yeah, the history of yellow peril goes deep, 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 right? So we can we can kind of talk about that too, and that relationship with uh, with uh, modern minority. Talk 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 about those two two ideas. Okay. Yellow peril Great. and my, and model minority. Talk, explain that to us. So uh, yellow peril actually goes back to like I mean like you know like 18th century like it's actually quite old and it comes from Europe right and it's, and the idea was the fact that here is this you know uh, dangerous um, uh, uh, yellow brood of people coming from East Asia China you know and later on Japan as well like that's it, it's gonna really take over right take over like Europe and everything else so this idea goes really deep and actually the idea is this I mean when you look at like Fu Manchu. Uh, and uh, these, these, like, you know, literary characters, it talks about them being super intelligent, right? Mm-hmm. Being able to seduce women, they're able, being able to take over the world, do their intelligence as well. And actually, uh, uh, Gary Okihiro, who's basically uh, this Japanese-American uh, scholar who basically historian, um, 
he talks about the fact that people think modern minority is positive and yellow pair is negative when in fact they're literally the same stereotype mm. and it can it can just kind of flip back and forth no matter what right so yellow peril is you're super um, you carry disease and you're dangerous but to some degree there's this kind of there there might be a villainous aspect of it you're so sneaky and intelligent and then modern minority is you're super intelligent you kind of you know you're uh, you're part of the system and you're kind of silent and he basically says, you don't realize the fact that this is actually like, uh, this is actually kind of, a, it's not like two poles, but it's kind of like a circle, right? You kind of go more too far one end and you end up with the other side, I right? I see what you're saying, yeah. And if you think of it that way, you're like, um, this idea of modern minority is not something positive. It's, ex- it's not like that's positive and yellow pair is negative. They're both oppressing in a very different way. And that's something that people don't understand because, uh, you know, when it works for them, they're like, well, it's perfectly fine. I'm like, uh, you don't know what's happening here. You don't understand the history of how these things work. So, so unpack the model minority a little bit more because I think most people come in contact with that. And, and, and I've heard over the, like early on, like my Asian American friends, um, you know, kind of joking about it. Like, uh, yeah, we're the mon- model minority, but they don't necessarily see it as deeply, I think, as you do. Can you unpack that some more? How is that so destructive? Yeah, I mean, so it was modern minority was basically formulated in, in like the sixties, okay, by like white sociologists, who basically, and this is how they defined it. They said, "Look, whites are Asian Americans are outwiting the whites, right?" And the whole the whole narrative was, and how white uh, how white how the white uh, no, I'm sorry, modern minority developed was during the Cold War. U.S. really needed to make sure that they were, you know, uh, they needed to win over Asia. So it was part of the campaign to say, we are not racist, right? Because we didn't want all of Asia to become communist. So they said, look, you know, um, capitalism is good. Is We're not racist. I mean, that's a lie because capitalism and racism and imperialism all go together, all right? All go together. Right? But so what, what they did was they said, look, Asians are, are the good minority. And actually, from the very beginning, it's actually this idea of good minority as opposed to what? Bad minority. The bad minority. It's very clear. It's very clear. The fact. And so we said, oh, because of the work ethic, because of family values, right? Um, these people are not the problematic minorities. They're good minorities. And part of the... So it's actually something that white people have imposed upon us. And people have said, okay, it works for us. Right, the Asian Americans said, "Well, this is a way to survive. It works for us." They, so they kind of owned up, you know, accepted it. The only problem is, modern minority is a social contract. It's basically saying you can succeed uh, uh, economically, academically. You cannot have cultural power or political power. Yes. And so this is actually one of the reasons why it's very difficult Asian Americans to. Uh, be politically active or be quiet, you know, or, or be loud or whatever, right? Protests or whatever. It's actually talking about a particular cultural formation that's happening. It is not true. <laughs> I have to say it everywhere. It is not true the fact that Asian Americans in general, because of the Asian heritage, do not protest. You look at Asia. I mean, Korea, for example, has a long history of protests. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So, and actually, I mean, people in Japan, like, like, there are people who basically protest in different places in Asia. It's not a, it's not an Asian culture value. It's a racial formation, uh. right? That basically makes Asian Americans accept this passive idea. 
Wow. Right? So, and then, of course, people keep on repeating it to them. Like, well, because you're, you're Asian. Like, you're, you should be quiet. If you're not, if you're too loud, you're like, oh, you're the weird Asian. What's wrong with you? You must be really angry. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. no, I'm, this is just who I am, right? So that formation, kind of stereotypical formation kind of starts happening. And then Asian Americans start repeating to themselves. And believing I'll tell you it. right now. Yeah. Start believing. Because once again, internalized racism, right? Yeah. I mean, when people, Asian Americans, at this, I mean, so many of them were, were, were you know, uh, join, joining forces and, th- you know, talking about Black Lives Matter and protesting along with Black Lives Matter, right? A lot of them said, oh, we've been so quiet because culturally we're so quiet. And I was like, where did you get that idea? Well, this is just truth. <laughs> I'm like, is it really truth? Have you looked at Asia? Like, do you understand what Asia looks like? This is not your Haitian heritage. I mean, there is an element of truth to that, but it's, to say that we're, all of us are quiet, first of all, is historically wrong. Mm-hmm. You're erasing all of Asian American like, activist history. And second of all, and second of all, that's just something that you've absorbed from kind of a racial stereotype that you've internalized. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, everybody internalizes it. Everybody says, it, well, and so we say, oh, it's odd because nobody knows Asian American history. Right. And nobody understands how I mean, so many so little people understand how these these uh, stereotypes of modern minority uh, function. So even I mean, like I said, this is I think this is re- reason important. Uh, this is so important. Uh, like this aspect is so important for people like you who basically talk about race and dynamics altogether, because if you have Asian Americans, a lot of them will think, well, I'm not black, so I must be white. So I'm going to follow a f- white narrative to talk about social justice. And I'm like, that is not going to be helpful because you're not white. Yeah. Right, and you have a particular narrative that you don't know about, but it's actually there. Right, it's not like well, I have own, I have all the privilege I have, and you know, it, they don't understand what's happening. Like they don't understand that they can't talk that way because that's not who they are. But it's so common among Asian Americans where they literally throw the Asian American community under the bus, and I'm like, that is so ignorant. Like I mean, we're we're facing racism, as we're facing erasure, so it's hard for us to speak up. We have to jump through hoops to, to speak up as well. Yeah. So for you to throw the community under the bus by being quiet is actually, you're basically part of the racist system that's oppressing Asian Americans exactly, as well. Exactly, exactly. Which is really bizarre, but you, you, know, you know how these dynamics work where, where people blame the community for the, the, like, oh, what's wrong with the black community? I mean, you know how this, yeah, yeah. these dynamics work. I mean, you're like, you're not seeing the big picture here. You're not seeing any of the systems, but there's a lot of woke Asian Americans who are doing this thing, which... As you can see, I'm getting kind of excited about these things because yeah, it yeah, makes me really it. angry. I love it. I love it. It really makes me angry. I'm like, this is this is not beneficial. You're not you're not woke. You only you only half baked, right? <laughs> you you need to get there to the other side where you actually know your history. Yeah. Right. And all the f- forces of, of white forces that actually what what we have done to Asian Americans. No Asian American like scholar would actually say something like that. It's actually recently woke people who think that they're white. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's, there's a lot of Asian Americans like that, which is actually very problematic. Wow, man. I, you know, I took some notes and I just want to, I just want to recap a couple of things you said. Uh, first of all, I love the, the statement, um, out whiting the whites. Like that, that I never even thought about that before, but there's a couple of things important that I think you said. Um, I wrote down whiteness fosters fear in white people. So it has this, it deforms white people in the process, but it fosters fear in white people by vilifying the other. Because you talked about yellow peril, and it made me think about um, the, 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 the narrative that's cast on immigrants, all immigrants coming in, Muslims coming in, um, African Americans, um, 
that's the common thread that we share as people of color. And this is not uh, trying to put white people in a certain place and separating, but it's talking about this, this thing called whiteness and what it does to people. And it's a common thread among people of color, this uh, causing fear among white people by placing these narratives on people of color. Um, the other thing you said, it took me back to the binaries, conversation on, on binaries, black, white binaries. In one sense, it erases Asian American community. But in another sense, it controls the narrative. Like you're stuck between the good, bad minority binary. And you have to now choose because in that, there's a controlling of the narrative. And you've now been given this, this, this identity that you have to, you have to pick one. Um, you either assimilate to something you cannot be, or you kind of internalize and, 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 and navigate in, in very difficult ways or in very unique ways if you choose to push back against um, that whiteness. Yeah, I mean, in the, in the black-white binary, if you talk about black-white binary in terms of blackness and whiteness, I think it is helpful, right? So that's basically why I always talk about navigating the black-white binary. What, do we, what does it really mean? I think some people were like, would say, well, this is a problematic. We have to throw it out. I'm like, you really can't throw it out because that's how it's historic. You can't throw out history, right? <clears throat> and so much of uh, racial history information has, has been done through that way. But we have to figure out what are, what are the narratives that it's been missing? What are the narratives that's erased? And what functions does it serve, right? Um, I mean, um, this is... This is one of the things that we have to kind of recover. Like, how do we, how do we uh, uh, look at history, history of how whiteness develops and how it keeps on morphing? You know, last night my wife and I were talking about <laughs> right before we went to bed. It's probably not, a, probably not a good thing. We were talking <laughs> about how it's so insidious. It's so insidious how um, uh, oppression is done, and the language of fairness. Or just, I mean, just whatever. Like, oh, you know, why can't everybody have, you know, uh, uh, you know, IDs when we, oh, just whatever. Like, how voter suppression is done is so, so tricky, right? You know, why don't we put bad people in jail? I mean, just how people talk, right? It sounds so innocuous and just nonsensical when, in fact, it, it has a longer history. It's almost impossible to understand what the person is talking about without a historical background. Yeah. And so, um, that's and to some degree, I think uh, <clears throat> one of the things that, in terms of whiteness, uh, there's a great book uh, called uh, White by Law. It, you know, it's kind of one of those core kind of uh, critical race theory books. Ian Haley and, Lopez. Yeah, yeah, and you know, talking about the fact that look at how whiteness was defined. It was largely refined by using Asian Americans, mm. right? Against, I mean, against Japanese Americans, and, and so it was Japanese Americans said, "Well, look." I am I am pretty much white. Like I am light, so I look like a white person. And they said, "Oh no, you have to be Caucasian." This is what the Supreme Court said. So <laughs> we have an Indian American says, "Well, I am officially Caucasian, yep, <laughs> right?" Yep. Yep. It's like, "Oh no, you have to be white in terms of how we normally think about whiteness." So it's opposite logic, but that's how people that how whiteness was defined. And once again, recovering that history is really helpful and saying, "Look, what does it mean to think about uh, how whiteness is developed as it interacted with, you know, Hispanics and uh, and Asian Americans? And so, 
I think recovering that helps us to see uh, all of the how it's impacted different communities and whiteness, how it keeps on morphing, how it keeps on morphing, how it protects some people, how it uh, and how how it's protected. And what does it mean to attack that? You're right in terms of kind of um, distinguishing whiteness versus uh, white people, right? Although I would say it's not like as though there's no connection whatsoever. Yes, I mean, yes, some people yes. are like, "Oh no, it's whiteness. It's not about." I'm like, "No, there is a connection, obviously, right? Yeah, absolutely, right? It's actually larger than white people, especially what we're talking about. Yes, yes. And when we talk about, and we're not saying every single white person kind of is um, is uh, it, it thinks the exact same way. It's not a stereotype in that sense. But I mean, you know, like uh, there's some <laughs> scholars that I've talked to, like, "Well, no, we're not talking about white people." I'm like, "Wait a minute." Like there is a connection. Like yes, let's not lose yes. the connection as a whole, because there there's a sense in which, um, as a sense in which, <clears throat> um, that I mean, white privilege or all that stuff in terms of phenotypical kind of reality uh, that, that we can't avoid, even though it is larger than that. Yes, yes, absolutely. You know, and I when I try to explain to people who immediately get offended when I talk about whiteness, you know, I try to get them to understand. It, like you said, it's not that every single white person is a racist or what have you, but they are shaped largely by a white perspective and it is through their agency, historically and currently, that this stuff plays out in, in our society. Um, I, I personally think that we're having the wrong conversation when we stop at racism. Mm. I think until we can have honest conversations both about this election or the last two elections, theology, um, socially, until we can actually bring, integrate whiteness, white supremacy, white uh, ideology into the conversation as a root cause, because racism to me is the product of. It's, it, it's, it's, we're dealing with what we can see, what we can feel, what we navigate, but it comes from a place. And I, I think that even in the church, until we're willing to have those honest conversations about uh, whiteness including that in the, in the, in the conversation we're going to we're going to be going around in circles for for a couple for a few generations yeah just two thoughts on that i mean <clears throat> the word that i've used a lot and i think it's it, this is actually in some sense uh I, okay the, when we talk about whiteness <clears throat> it's actually uh, sometimes it encompasses everything it's such an abstract it's like a it's like a, such a broad term yes it, it some degree it becomes kind of an abstraction mm -hmm. So I think often I usually use whiteness when I talk when I want to talk about the whole thing. Okay. But when I'm trying to communicate, um, I'll make a distinction sometimes between uh, white supremacy and white normativity. Not because it's not white normativity is not an expression of white supremacy. It's a particular expression of it. Yeah. Right. It's a particular yeah. expression of the whole thing. So, and white normativity in terms of how it works, it's not like because when when people picture white supremacy, they picture the KKK. They picture like Charlottesville. Yes. Yes. And I'm like. That is not who you are for a lot of people. Uh, you know, when, I, when I'm talking to people, I'm like, and I see that's not what's the most toxic thing at this particular moment. It is white normativity. And how normativity works is you have to do nothing. It's passive. Mm. You do nothing. You don't, you're not even thinking it. You just think, you know, there's a great article called Standard White that I, I use often by Morris. Um, I forget what his name, first name is, but... Um, I've used it so many times because, uh, and I, I kind of talk about this thing, how uh, white normativity is probably one of the most uh, helpful concepts uh, 
uh, Michael Morris. So the idea is that, um, and this is the example he uses. He says, you know, it's not the fact that whites are good at everything because we know it's not true. Like, you know, black people, like this is what he says, black people might be very athletic, but the argument is, well, but they're kind of beasts, aren't they? They're not really white. I mean, they're not really normal. Because normal people wouldn't be that athletic. <laughs> and of course, Asian Americans, oh, you know, they're definitely smart in certain things. But they're kind of like robots, aren't they? They're not really human. They're too good in certain things. Because mm. what's normal? What normal is white people. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It doesn't matter if some people are good at that. It doesn't even matter because that's how white, white supremacy argued. This is, a, this is the latest iteration of, of white supremacy, right? We're just normal people. Yeah. And in so many sense, that normativity kind of uh, is there. And normativity is there, I think, uh, through this idea, this, this function uh, called, uh, uh, this process called X nomination. That's basically what Roland Barthes, French philosopher, calls, calls it. He's like, you don't have to name it, it's just there. It's a given because you don't name it, and by not naming it, it has power. Yes, right. Yes. So, I mean, this, people talk about this thing: the fact, the fact that you know the whiteness kind of functions through not naming to its invisibility. But technically, precisely what we're talking about is the normativity of it. Yep. The fact that it's just a given. Yeah. And in that sense, I think people find it less reactive. Like, oh, you're not saying that I'm. I'm like racist. I'm like it doesn't even matter. You're racist because you're 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 in America. You're you're racist because you, you live in this particular part of history. You, you, don't, you don't have to do anything. It's purely passive in this, in yeah. this sense, right? Yeah. It's part of the kind of uh, Coburn's skin cultural formation we're talking about. And that, I think, helps people see precisely what we're talking about and not just a lot more precisely because uh, some of the words that we use, I mean, and I would say this is an expression of white supremacy. It's just that it's a particular expression of it because white supremacy covers so much. If we say it that way, like, well, but I'm not these things. And I'm like, we know you're not. You're this, right? And so I think that's one of the things that I kind of use a lot yeah. in terms of the, uh, to communicate what the problem is. Yeah, I, 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 I've heard you use that. I've heard you uh, speak that. Um, I will use interchangeably, and sometimes it depends on my mood, to be honest with you. <laughs> sometimes I want to <laughs> say white supremacy. And then there's right, sometimes right. I'll use the, the idea, um, a colleague, of, uh, a peer of mine was sharing this about centralizing whiteness. Hmm. Um, and so another iteration or another manifestation of that. Uh, but, I, but I do think that we have to have that conversation. We have to have the conversation yes, yes. engaged in, in, in these different areas, politics, theology, uh, what have you, ethics. Um, my, la my last question, I want to kind of come back to, um, you've said so much, I want to really, I can go back to so many different things, but I wanted to touch on Asian American theology you talked about Asian American history. Um, Asian American experience with racism is very unique. Um, but Asian American theology, um, I had someone ask me one time, um, why is there a black theology? And this was a black person. Why is there a black theology? And so this was years ago, and I really didn't have the language to try to explain to them. And I was trying to talk to them about context and, and perspective. Um, it's not like it's a completely different religion. Um, but help, help people to understand what are some, uh, what is unique and, and, and so valuable and, and, and profound about an Asian American um, 
theology or, or context that, that we can glean from, that we need, that, that needs to be at the table. You know, I often say, yes, we have white theology, which we don't call it white theology. Go back to your normativity. We just call it theology. Um, but I, I would say black theology needs to be at the table. Asian, Asian American perspective or theology needs to be at the table. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> first of all, I think this is what I would say. Uh, just a very short kind of, uh, when I talk about um, justification, theological justification of, of contextual theology. Uh, actually, contextual theology isn't very helpful, as you know, because everything's contextual. Yep. The question is, does, does context matter for theology? Yes. And, the, and that's the question of saying, is God, does God care about who we are in our particular spaces and bodies? Yes. And I can't elaborate on this, but I would say it matters because God is a God of covenant, right? And when we erase, I, won't, I can't unpack this, but when, when, we have, when we erased Israel, we lost the particularity. God actually didn't randomly, God worked through a particular people yes. in history, yes. which is bizarre, right? And of course, Jesus is that Jewish, like first century Jewish man. Even now, yes. even the resurrected Jesus has that body. Yes. So if you erase that, then you have no foundation for contextual anything. That's good. That's good. You only have a, you only have a sociological argument, which is actually makes it very weak, right? It, it, it can very end up being it, it can very easily end up being ideological and not theological. And I say, look, look at look at Revelation. Look at how God interacts. God is a God of covenant, which basically means God interacts with people. Mm -hmm. So, and the second thing is God of God of history. When you look at uh, when you look at a when you look at the call narratives or how God encounters people, do you think it's, don't think it's weird the fact that God just didn't tell Moses, oh, Moses, you have an identity in me, so you should be happy. You're done. Why does Moses do anything at all? Yes. Why does Moses have a particular calling in that time and space against the, against the Egyptian empire? Mm -hmm. Or why does Daniel have a particular calling against the Babylonian empire? Mm -hmm. Right or Esther during the Persian Empire. Everybody, there's all this empires going mm -hmm, on, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and Mary during, during the Roman Empire. Why? Because and these callings cannot be interchanged, which is really bizarre. Mm. We think there's one call, one God. You know, Jesus Christ, same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm like, but it turns out that Jesus Christ is interacting with real people in time and space, which basically means Jesus as he says something different to different people yes. in time and space, yes. Yes. which is absolutely biblical. Yes. I don't know what Bible we're reading, but like that's basically what it says. Unless you erase the Jewish people mm. and make the whole thing homogenized, mm. which of course we have different problems, right? <clears throat> and also, God is a God of uh, uh, God is a God of uh, the incarnation. Like our bodies actually matter, right? And that body is particular. Jesus Christ is not a neutral human. <laughs> I mean, there's no such thing, right? And I, I always make fun of of the Chalcedonian Creed, which already happened after they erased Jewish people, right? Mm -hmm. I'm like, you know, there's already anti-Semitic kind of thoughts already. So when, when the creed develops, they're not only using, right, Greek philosophical ideas, right? So the category of humanness and category of divineness. I'm like, there is no category of humanness in Jewish thought. There's only one particular, you know, there's only one particular God, right? Mm -hmm. Nor is there a generic humanity. Have you ever met a generic human, which is my argument? There is no such thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just like in the sense that Jesus is a particular human being and in particular bodies in time and space, we will resurrect in our particular bodies, which be, a lot of people don't think about the fact that we, are, we, we believe in the resurrection of the body, which I, I don't even know why churches kind of, I've forgotten this altogether, 
And this is basically why our bodies matter. That's why black bodies matter, because they stay black for the whole eternity, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I think that's basically what I would say. Now, switching gears to, to the Asian-American part of it, um, Asian-Americans live at the intersection of multiple things, right? And what in the, in the Asian heritage bit, in terms of our particular migration experience. And I think, actually, one thing that I, I do think, uh, well, if I can mention like, these two things that I think that Asian-Americans contribute is, Asian Americans, because of our particular and really multifaceted experience, um, and I teach about this, I, I say if you understand Asian Americans as a people, you will develop a lot more sophisticated interpersonal hermeneutic, which basically means you will understand how to see people more precisely. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like if you understand Asian American categories, you'll be able to tell the difference very precisely why uh, uh, um, a refugee from Somalia is different than a Jamaican, right, immigrant, as opposed to, you know, a black American who's been, you know, in the U.S. for you know, 300 years or whatever. Because yeah. there's a, or the recent immigrant from Nigeria, right? Now, those are all black people, but we know they're different. And what I'm saying is because Asian American category is so complicated that it gives you so many categories to think about, right? And when you, when you kind of become proficient in these categories to see people, you're able to use this, Pretty much everywhere. Like, why are these people the way that they are? Well, once again, you don't have one or two categories. You don't have just race. You don't have one race and ethnicity. You have race and ethnicity and culture and, and shades of you know phenotype and everything else. So you develop that because that's how complicated Asian American category is. That's the first thing. I think the second, and, and how to think about theology in that way. I think the second thing, I mean, which is actually more close to, uh, close to kind of my own kind of East Asian experience is, because, uh, you know, Asian-Americans, there's so many contributions depending on what your ethnic heritage is, right, and your generation is and everything else. Um, I think uh, one of the questions I think about is the, the nature of authority and hierarchy, right? I mean, I was talking to my wife about this yesterday, how I think, uh, I think about parenting, right? Because parenting is really important for Asian-Americans uh, and just kind of Asian people in general, right? And the question is, our theological development about about families and parenting haven't really developed that much. Why? Because just just generally white Western theology, they don't care about family. It's actually purely individualistic, right? Family goes over to what the hinterlands of like pastoral care or whatever. And I'm like, what? Well, wait a minute. But the Bible talks about this a lot. What are the theological dogmatic reflections upon these things, right? And the fact that I think sometimes uh, liberal white parenting is like, well, there is no authority, there's no power. I'm like. No, it's a terrible idea <laughs> because somebody has to be, it's, it's not the fact that somebody, so somebody has to not only be in charge, but somebody has to be responsible. Responsible. If you, right? If you relegate authority and power and hierarchy, you give all the responsibility to the kids as well, which is actually oppressive for the kids. Mm -hmm. That's not a choice. They have to, because they have to bear the consequences of the other responsibility as well. So that's actually like abusive. That's actually why that kind of liberal parenting does not work. Yeah. Right, my, my 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 wife is a parent educator. I mean, she's actually researched this stuff, and she's like, no, that's that's actually another dysfunctional way of doing it. The question is, how do you wield and understand authority and power correctly, which is actually part of the fundamental problem of how we think about and interact with God. That's actually, uh, I think, one of the areas that's not really developed that well because you're not asking the right kind of questions. Every contextual theology asks good questions. And that's the contribution that we get from different perspectives. Mm. It's the same God, yeah. one church, yeah. but everybody's asking different questions and through different voices, we actually have a fuller picture 
right, of, of, of who we're interacting with yeah. because they're asking questions and pushing development in a certain area where some people might be like, well, that's good enough. I'm like, that's not good enough. There's actually a lot more questions about authority and power and human authority and power that has to be developed that really, that, that, that will benefit everybody but that's actually pressing for certain communities. And, uh, I, and this is where Asian American, a lot of Asian Americans, I'll, I'll talk to Asian Americans if they're out there, a lot of people fret about what is our contribution. You never figure out your contribution by thinking about what is a contribution. You do, you press into your, your own burning issues, the questions. That will be your contribution. Wow. Right, but I mean, like it's not like black people are like, well, what is our contribution to the world? We'll we'll set up a you know gospel choir. Yeah. That's literally nonsense. Yeah. Nobody thinks about a contribution by thinking about contribution. They do theology in their context, and then they realize this is how God God meets us. This is how this is how God works within us, and then that ends up being the contribution. That's the contribution. Right? Yeah. And so that's that's one of the reasons why I see a lot of Asian American young Asian Americans fretting about that or go you know hand wringing. What is our contribution? I'm like. Understand yourself well. Yeah. Think about the burning questions of your community. That will be the contribution, and that is not happening right now because they don't know themselves that well. Mm. They have a, they don't have a critical understanding of that history. And it's, and and that's what should be at the table. That's what comes right. brings to the table. And then of course, and then all the fruits will come. Right. Yeah. All all the all the fruits will come because you're developing and pressing and asking questions that other people aren't asking about. Right, I mean, yeah. like Luther was asking about the burning questions of his day. Yeah. Like this, you was. I'm like, what's the what are the burning questions of my day? How do I take myself and my community and my questions seriously? Yeah, right. And that's and and once again, one of the things about it's about family, it's about authority, it's about identity, it's about you know how do you how do you deal with invisibility? I mean, these are the questions that we're talking about, right? And of course, all those things are to some degree universal. But it's also particular because we're pressing those questions in a particular way, yeah. and that, in, in in a sense, benefits everybody. Absolutely, and I think that's a lesson for all of us. What, what, are, what are the burning questions um, from my experience, from my culture, from my lived experience? I think that's a lesson right. for all of us, not just the Asian American community. Man, yeah, because because we're not doing theology for white gays. Yeah. I mean, we're like, what, what is what is something that they're gonna recognize? I'm like, who cares, right? Because you can actually do theology for them, but is that going to serve your community? So yeah. much of, I think, Asian-American theology is written that way for academia. It's like for white gays. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm great. You, you, I'm, I'm glad the fact that these people are giving you awards and stuff, but even the awards themselves are skewed. Yeah. <laughs> even the recognition themselves are skewed. It's not neutral, right? Yeah. And that's basically, I think, what people are not realizing, how deep this, <laughs> how deep this crap goes, you wow. know? Wow. Man, I, and I suspect when you started talking about theology... <laughs> Uh, in particularity, I, I suspect that some of that is tied to your critique of multi-ethnic churches, which I think we need to. We, I want to have you back on to just to talk about that. If, oh if, man, if, if I, I, I have a lot of on. fire for that. I have a lot of fire for that. <laughs> I mean, because I really, I, I think, I think it. I mean, not all of them, obviously, and I think, I think it, there's a there are ways to do it well. Yeah. But the rhetoric is toxic, and I can even quote some of these people who talk about. Oh, you know, monocultural church is heresy. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, just yeah. and then well, look at the Bible. I'm like, we're in the Bible. Like, what are you even talking about? <laughs> right. So, uh, yeah, I could I can have that conversation all day because it's become kind of a it's become kind of orthodoxy, and it's actually I call it propaganda. I'm like, this is actually ideological propaganda, and you're not seeing the propaganda in it. 
yeah. right? Yeah. And uh, and how toxic it really is. So, but we can talk about yeah, another we're, day. We're, we're definitely gonna come back to that. Thank you so much. Uh, so much you've shared. So much you poured into me just now. Uh, I feel like I was in a lecture, but we're but it's just me and you, and we're having this conversation. <laughs> yeah. So thank you so much, and I definitely want to have you back to to continue the conversation. I think your voice is uh, necessary, particularly in this time and space. Well, thank you so much for having me. I mean, it was fun. I mean, to some degree, I'm just, I like I said, it's 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 a pretty it's a pretty difficult time. I think uh, uh, for all of us, and I've been feeling it. And I mean, this is some degree. I'm kind of I'm kind of venting over here, so it's yeah, a lot yeah. of emotion. Yeah. I don't always lecture this way, but I mean, I have so much things pent up. I'm just it's very frustrating. Yeah, so yeah. I, I'm glad I would take kind of express some of these things with you. It's 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 fun. To connect with you, it's it's too bad we can't do it over coffee like we usually do and I have know. a conversation. I know we'll do it soon enough. We'll do it soon enough. Thank Sounds you so good, much. Bro. Thank you so much. If you want to continue to learn more from Dr. Daniel Lee, you can follow him on Facebook at Daniel D Lee. You can follow him on Twitter at Daniel D Lee. His handle is Daniel D H Lee. That's Daniel D H Lee. You can also purchase his book double particularity on Amazon. Don't forget to pre-order your copy of my book, Open Wounds, right now on Amazon. The book will be released on February 9th, 2021. I'm excited. Can't wait for you to read it. I hope you enjoyed the show and thank you for parking at Intersections.